Hi friends, this is episode 86 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi friends, I am so excited to go through this conversation with you. It turned out to be a conversation that started light but went very deep very quickly and we got to the bottom of a lot of issues that you're probably you know wrestling with as well and that's how do you process your purpose and the pain that it cost why why is it that you've got to go through so much pain to to get to the place to where you want to be and we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about where is god when all this pain is happening and why does he allow this pain in in your life and what do you do how do you process process this pain so that in the end you ultimately are able to achieve your personal calling to help the world around you in the way that God designed you to do it it's going to be an incredible conversation don't forget to go to our website thebiblelab.com and get the study guide that goes along with this uh, session six of a life of many colors i'm so glad that you're here with us welcome to the bible lab here we go number one if i could i would swap some of my family members for some of the people in this room oh i hope your whole family isn't here (laughs) <laughs> okay, so the people raising a no card are saying my family's here. Okay, this is, this is amazing. I'm seeing over 50%. It looked like about 55% of you said no. You have no idea how jealous I am of you. And all the people that said yes around here as well. Because uh, it looked like about 40% said yes and 5% said maybe, which means which means that about half of us here would consider adopting other people if there was such a thing as a swap, you know, a swaption. It's like adoption, but you just swap them out. Exactly. We kind of act that way sometimes, though, because of the people that we invite over to our house. We adopt other people as family. And I don't know if you've done that. We've done that as our family, where our kids call them uncle and aunt uh, because we want to be family because they're so amazing, and we spend more time with them than some of the people we're actually related to. And I imagine some of you have that same situation. And just to be meddling a little bit more, let me ask number two. My family has highly dysfunctional members in it. Oh, look at this. I'm saying about 85% yes, 10% no, and 5% maybe. Okay, but what I'm also seeing is people look at each other and nod, which is quite scary because you're laughing at the same time. You guys scare me so badly. (laughs) Dysfunctional is not a good thing. You guys know that, right? Okay. Number three, there are members of my own family that I have a nearly impossible time communicating with. Oh, wow. It looks like 90% yes, and about 8% no, and 2% maybe. Wow. Okay, so this shocks me, because at the very beginning, when I asked if I could swap some of my family members for some of the people in this room, I obviously didn't realize that the problem wasn't the fact that you have dysfunctional family members you can't talk to. It's just you don't want to swap with any of the people in this room, which I find highly offensive. I think it shows something else, though. I I think it shows your level of forgiveness. I think it shows your level of tolerance to where there are family members that you have that you really have an impossible time communicating with, and yet you still have not given up on them because the majority of you in that situation are saying, "I, I wouldn't give them up. Blood is thicker than water. It has more to than viscosity to do with it. You're saying that 
even though there are people that you just cannot communicate with, it is impossible. God still gives you hope of resolution in those relationships. And I'm really happy to see that because what we're going to talk about today is how God brings about moments of resolution in these impossible situations. These situations where your own family members have done the unforgivable, have done things that knowingly were done to hurt you. And in fact, at times they reveled in the fact that they caused you to suffer, and yet you still haven't given up on them. And so we're going to talk today, as we look at this interwoven story of Joseph and, and God, we're going to look today at how God brings about these moments, these opportunities of resolution. And it's not the way that we normally would guess. Because normally we guess that God brings about situations where the healing comes because of good times and good things. But sometimes, as in the life of Joseph, he brings about resolution by bringing pain, turmoil, and trials into your life. What does that say about God? We're going to have to discuss that today. Number four. None of the bad things that have happened to me were outside of the will of God. In other words, all the bad things that happened to you were God's will. Oh, here's the groaner. Okay, good. We're groaning. You, everyone must play. I'm seeing a lot of people abstain. But I am seeing about 50% no, 35% yes, and 10% maybe. I don't know if that's, that adds up, but I'm just going to throw those numbers out. The majority of you said no. So you're saying, let me redo this double negative, that if you said no, you're saying some of the bad things that have happened to me we're outside of God's will. Yeah? We're going to talk about this. This is the hard thing. Because as we look at why bad things happen to you, we've been really clear. Bad things happen to you because of the results of sin. All good gifts come from God. All bad gifts come from Satan. But we have a challenge here because... This story tells you sometimes bad things come into your life because of God's will. Because if the bad things don't come into your life, God's goodwill can't happen in your life. And God's ultimate will of your success and you fulfilling your life purpose cannot happen. And so when some people say, why God did you allow this to happen to my life? You have to understand God allows that into your life because it's still part of God's will for your life. And we're going to talk about that today because a lot of people can be confused why God allows bad things to happen to good people. David sure had a challenge with that. Just read every other psalm. He's saying, why, God, did the bad people prosper and the good people suffer? And we're going to talk about that today, and I wish King David were here. Number five, God sometimes reveals my sins publicly. God sometimes reveals my sins publicly. Oh, look at this. Okay, so I'm seeing about 60% yes, 35% no, and 5% maybe. So, I grew up in a home where there was a phrase, be sure your sins will find you out. <laughs> did, did you grow up in my home? Okay. Because any time one of my sins would come to light, that, it was almost a song in our house. Be sure your sins will find you out. And it was attributed to God. God's going God's to expose this. Today we're going to look at a story where sins are exposed, and we're going to talk about is this something from God? Is this something God uses? Or is this something that is just incidental? And so we're going to talk about that as we look at the story. Now, we've got a lot to cover today. And so what I did, instead of us going all the way back through 
chapter 43 and chapter 44, which are the build-up chapters to this reconciliation story of Joseph with, with his brothers, which happens in chapter 45 of Genesis. I have on the study guide basically the high points. I, I want you to go back and, and read it. I want you to read through chapter 43, chapter 44, and then ultimately go back through chapter 45 after this conversation too, because there are some things within these chapters that uh, the Holy Spirit will just kind of highlight for you and, and show you extra meaning as it pertains to your story. Because as many of you have already discovered through this series, Joseph's story is your story. I, I, I can't even point to all the people who have communicated with me since we started this series. Oh my word. I knew I always loved the story of Joseph, but now realizing all of the commonalities, all the things I have in common and all the, all the things that relate to my life, uh, now I understand why I love the Joseph story. And today you're going to see it really, really clearly. So I want you to go back through those chapters uh, as you have time and, and you can read through it. But I'm just going to give you kind of the highlight, the, the, the little high points, especially for those who are just joining us. I, I, don't, I don't want you to um, be kind of lost, thrown in, into the deep end here. So in Genesis 43, it talks about Jacob's family running out of the food from Egypt. Remember, the brothers had just been down there. They've been accused of being spies by Joseph. They don't, they don't recognize Joseph. And, uh, and so... He sends them home with this food and says, if you ever want to come back for food, to prove you're not spies, bring this younger brother you're talking about. Otherwise, don't ever come back because I won't even see you. And so, family runs out of the food that they got from Egypt and they have to return for some more. Then Jacob, Father Jacob, father to 12 boys. He thinks he's a father only to 11 boys now. Uh, he acts as if Benjamin is his only son. How would you feel if you were the other 10 sons from Leah when he's like, oh no, I could, if this son dies, I couldn't possibly live. So no, you can't take him because he's my son. And the rest of you are saying, what am I, chop liver? Come on. It's what if one of us dies? But finally, it's so bad. They've got to get some food that, uh, that Judah himself says, look, if anything happens to him, it's on my head. It's on my head. You, you, can, you can deal with me. And so Jacob wants to protect Benjamin, but basically he's also written off another son. Because Simeon, if you re recall from last week, Simeon has been the one who is held captive. At first it was going to be nine held captive, one goes home, but then Joseph has a change of heart after three days and, and sends nine home and leaves Simeon in prison. Why Simeon? Because Simeon was the next oldest and what Joseph hears in Hebrews, uh, Hebrew language that the, uh, the brothers don't know that he speaks, they're, they're, they're sharing about... Uh, how they never should have done what they did because now God is punishing them for selling off their, their brother. And this is punishment. And Reuben, the oldest, says, I told you guys not to do that. And so Reuben gets forgiveness from Joseph because Joseph gets some new information. And so Simeon, the next oldest who's responsible, now is in jail, is in prison. But it's interesting to see Jacob, the father, is very protective of Benjamin and so much so, he's willing to write off one of his other sons and say, okay, well, we'll never see him again. <laughs> Father of the Year Award, right there. <laughs> Next, in chapter 43, when Joseph, okay, so Jacob lets them go. And when Joseph sees Benjamin with the brothers, he invites them to lunch in his house. He gives Benjamin five times more food than the other brothers to see what they're going to do. They have the same character. These guys are the same. Are they jealous of, of the spoiled brat? All the things that used to go to Joseph now go to Benjamin. And in chapter 44, Joseph has his silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack and the silver bags placed in the mouth of each of the brother's sacks of grain. Same thing he did the first time. 
When confronted outside of town, the brothers offer themselves as slaves and death to the one, if the accusations are true, the one who took the cup. Um, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. So they all tear their clothes, pack up their donkeys, and go back into town, even though the steward says they're free to go except for Benjamin. In the audience of Joseph, Judah begs Joseph to be the slave in place of Benjamin. And this is the breaking point. Here, Joseph, who was sold into slavery by these brothers, heartlessly, is witnessing his brothers beg and say, we'll be slaves to take the spoiled brat's place. And that's where we pick up chapter 45 verses, we're, we're going to go through verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to look at a couple other paragraphs later. So Genesis 45, 1 to 11 says, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Now commentary, uh, commentators say that he yelled this in the Egyptian dialect. Otherwise, his brothers would have been, okay, we're gone too. So he says in Egyptian, the brothers don't understand what's happening. Just all the Egyptians, the attendants leave. Then, verse 2, and he, Joseph, wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. So imagine, here you are, the brothers, and... He just barks something in a language you don't understand. Everyone leaves except for you. And then the second most powerful man in Egypt starts bawling and crying so loud that all Egypt hears it. Would you be as frightened as possible? <laughs> What's this guy going to do? We're all dead. What, I mean, what would be going through your mind in that situation? So Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Now, once again, the commentators say that instead of speaking in Egyptian now, remember, his interpreter is gone. Now he speaks in the Hebrew tongue. So he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Now, here's the interesting thing. Up to this time, he's saying, is your father, is your father. Now he says, is my father revealing his connection to them. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And, and the Hebrew language here is, I beg you, come close to me. Which is not a stance that this amazing leader has shown to them yet. Up to this moment, it's all been power, 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 and you are distant from me. In fact, when he eats with his brother's lunch, he has his own table. His other Egyptians have their own table, and his brothers, the Hebrews, have their own table because it was very uh, distasteful to eat at a table with a Hebrew if you're Egyptians. They just didn't do it. Most people think it's because of the facial hair and the hair on their heads. So here he says... Now I want you close to me. He's had this separation this whole time. He said, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. This is the piece of information the brothers have never shared with this powerful leader of Egypt. They've said, and one is no more, to reference him in the past, but they never said what happened. So he reveals a piece of information that only they would know between them because they haven't told anybody. They haven't even told their father. And so he says, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two, for two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives 
by a great deliverance. Verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. That phrase father means advisor. So he had the ear of Pharaoh, much like a father would have the ear of a son. Verse 9, now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said, says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. All right, so let's process this section before we go to the next two sections that we're going to look at today. First of all, verse 7, the first part. That's why it has an A there, 7A, the first part of verse 7. He says, God sent me. Now, if you were to take a step back, you'd be like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> I believe your brother sent you. They sold you to the Midianites. That caravan, remember the, remember the caravan? You pleaded and, and begged to not have to be sold, and your brother sold you. But yet Joseph is reframing it. We talked a little bit last week about reframing these issues. It's the only way you can get past it, is to reframe. Why are the bad things happening to you? And Joseph here has reframed it so much so that he says, you didn't send me, God sent me. You thought you were sending me, but God had a plan. And even though your intent was for evil, God says, oh, I can use this for the good. So he says, God sent me. And this reiterates Joseph's interpretation of his trials in Egypt. The term sent, salah, often describes someone dispatching a person on a mission as when God sends forth his prophets. So this word that Joseph used said, I was sent on a mission. Not simply God put me here. He said, God sent me on a mission. I had a specific mission to accomplish. That's why God sent me here. You might be taking the blame, but God takes the credit because this was my mission. Then in verse 5 and 7, he says, God sent me to save your lives. And Joseph explains that the purpose of God to save lives, which is lemehia, uh, surpasses surpassed the malicious intent of his brothers. And this is that next step that at at the end of our session last week, I I almost said, don't worry, we're going to get there. But I I knew you'd be back. And so I wasn't too worried that the things were unraveled because I knew this section would be that next step that many of you really struggled with this week as you tried to process through your own family, your own uh, individuals in your life that you've had to reframe and say, how do I deal with the pain that I've had to go through and, and process that pain in a way that I can offer the forgiveness that I need to offer those people? Joseph communicates it in this way, that God allowed him to see that even if people mean malicious intent, that God still allows you to go through that so that you can save people's lives. Now, Christ says it this way on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let me ask you a question. There are a bunch of people around there hurling insults and spitting on the crucified Christ. Did they know what they were doing? Oh yeah, they knew. They were hurling insults and spitting on him and laughing at who could come up with the best insult. Uh, The people who made sure that Jesus was the one chosen to be on the cross uh, instead of Barabbas, uh, did they know what they were doing? Were they intentionally torturing an individual to death? They knew exactly what they were doing, right? So how in the world could Jesus, being the honest person that he was, hanging on a cross, say that these people didn't know what they were doing if they knew exactly what they were doing. They didn't know the backstory, Marina says. What else did they not know? The future story. They didn't know the backstory. They didn't know the future story. So let me ask you this. The people who have hurt you in your past, do they know your backstory? Sometimes. But let me ask you this. Do they know your future story? No. 
They don't, because there's only one individual who knows your future story, and that's God. The only one that knows your life purpose is God. And so Jesus himself, hanging on a cross, can honestly say, these people don't know what they're doing, because they didn't know Christ's purpose. They didn't know the reason why he had to die. In fact, they spent generations after that trying to explain to the Jews why someone died for their sins in the way that Jesus did, because the people could not understand Christ's purpose. And the reason why you can forgive some of the people who have hurt you so badly is because they don't know what they do. They don't know who God made you to be. They don't know your individual life calling, your purpose, why you're here. Who are the people that you're called to connect with so that they connect with God and ultimately are saved? Because that's why you're here, is to be a living person who's connected to God that connects other people to God just simply because that's your purpose. And God places you in network situations so that your influence will encourage people to try having a connection with God. So that's, in a sense, what Joseph is doing as well. He looks at the situation and says, you guys didn't know what you were doing because you didn't know my purpose. You didn't understand the future. And I want us to, uh, I, I, I want us to answer a couple of questions here. You'll see on the back side of the page after, after the verse 8, that you can read. I'm, I'm going to skip it just for sake of time because it does kind of uh, echo what we just said. How have you seen God turn evil into blessings? And what are the challenges we face in trying to keep the focus of our attentions purpose-driven? And also I want you to answer, nothing which happens to you is outside the power and care of God. How does that affect you now as you look back at your personal history and we're going to start back here with the blue microphone yes hi hi um well i want to mix this situation with uh what you said in the beginning for about us yeah praying for the ukrainians yeah it's uh, because the root is not just knowing the past and the future or the purpose because because of sin most of us don't know the pur that there's a purpose yeah and so i was like in an inner conversation between Christians yesterday, um, somebody said, well, if we had a, a good sniper to kill the leader, everything would be done. And I said, well, and because I heard about something called the myth of redemptive, redemptive uh, violence. Yeah. And so how, like, if I were an Ukrainian, a Christian Ukrainian, yeah. how do I see, quote unquote, the enemy? Yeah. You know, is he my brother or he's my enemy? Hmm. How do I overcome this situation? With more violence, more weapons, hmm. calling the big brother us, you know? So it's, it's easy to, th for me, I was thinking to me myself, yeah. it's easy for me to theorize everything, but when action comes, how do you react? You know, if I were one of them there being, yeah. seeing my f family being killed, yeah. And somebody gives me a gun in my hand, you know, you don't know. Yeah. So that's it. You know, and, and it brings up a, a great point because, I mean, I grew up hearing prophecy of in the, in the last days there will be wars, rumors of wars, brothers against brothers. And those of us who have been over to that area, you know, uh, there's a lot of Russians in Ukraine who call that home. And there are a lot of Ukrainians in Russia. And it is very much brother versus brother, so it is quite a conflict, an internal conflict for many as well. Um, but I, I think you bring up the relevant point. Uh, there is no such thing as uh, uh, redemptive, uh, what's the second? Violence, yes, redemptive violence. Um, violence breeds violence. Um, and so that's why many people that I've talked to have said this needs divine intervention, because you're right. Uh, uh, one sniper bullet is not going to resolve this on a global scale. Um, so the question is, what what will resolve that? And that's the question of the day. I think the red microphone was the second. Yeah. Yeah, Debbie. Um, this reminds me of um, a couple things. One, as a parent, um, 
your perspective, whether you're the child, maybe even a young adult child, yeah. versus the parent makes such a difference. For instance, if your parents, you're in your late 20s and they decide, you know what, you're gonna be financially independent, which you may not be able to see the wisdom in that, that it's for your own growth. The yeah. purpose is so you'll be a functional adult. Um, yeah. And if your parents keep supporting you, you'll never learn to manage your money. Yeah. And Do you hear um, that, young adults? <laughs> so, you know, they can view that as something really awful and terrible. Um, I think that um, God is more interested in our development than our happiness. Yes. I read this really interesting book recently by Dr. Carol Dweck. She is um, a renowned um, psychologist. She's done a lot of research um, at Yale, Stanford, well-known universities. And I was so impressed because, to me, it's a secular perspective with an affirmation of a biblical truth. Um, she talks about a set mindset or a growth mindset where you see every difficulty um, as an opportunity to, like you sit down with your kids when they come home from school instead of chastising them for getting a C. Well, you know, how can, what could we do differently? How could we make it better? Oh, this is an opportunity for learning, you know? And when you think of that, um, it really changes your idea of how you face trials. And I think it's the same thing with life trials. Um, you know, there have been a number of things that have happened in my life that it's very, I was really despondent about. And it's hard to get that bigger focus, and you're looking at only the pain of the moment. Yeah. And I think when you can step back, um, and I don't think God caused those things, but I absolutely agree that he uses those things to grow you. And... Um, you know, as you said, we can't always see the story to come. And I, I couldn't see it for a long time. But I think knowing that, it reduces your anxiety. It doesn't mean the pain's going to be any less. Yeah. But just like a parent who's going to walk their child through the process and help them figure out that budget or whatever, yeah. you know, knowing God's there all the time. But it gives you this great opportunity. And if you see it that way, it's just you have a totally different perspective. So that's my point. I think that perspective yeah. makes a huge difference. And as you already said, our purpose here on earth um, is to reflect his loving character to others. Yeah. It's not just about that thing that's happening for that day. People yeah. are watching us all the time to yeah. see how we handle Absolutely. every little trial or thing. So if we're preaching God out of one side of our mouth and then mm -hmm. uh, the other just, you know, just really not handling um these kind of trials, I think, I think it says something about, and, yeah. but we're all growing, you know, yeah. and I think we're more compassionate to other people when we realize this too, and not labeling and judging, which she yeah. talks about all this stuff in this book, but yeah. I said, yes, there's, you know, affirmation from some secular yeah. um, institution that, yeah. um, you know, character is developed, and yeah. again, God is more interested in our development than our happiness of the day. Absolutely, he is. Thank you, Debbie. That's that's profound because, uh, uh, like you like you said, um, I've always tr tried to help people understand something that I had to learn fairly early on. Um, people look at the challenges of life, or the pain, or or the negative things of life, in one of two different ways, and I think it makes them either a, a victim or a victor. Um, but victims look at these challenges, these these uh, negative things in their life, as obstacles. And victorious people look at the exact same situation, not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. And because of that, the victorious people keep winning and the victims are in this never ending spiral of losing and this growing feedback loop of negativity. And so uh, this story in Joseph's life shows how, yes, Joseph could have looked at all these obstacles and said, you guys put me through hell. This was horrible. Now you need to pay. God put me in a place to put you in your place. But instead, he said, no, God took all of these things that you saw as obstacles, and he gave me the opportunity to save people because God is in the business of saving people. And so Joseph understood that every single negative thing that happened to him, he needed to stop attributing it to the people who, yes, we could say they're very culpable of that issue. They chose to bring pain into your life that wouldn't have been there had they, had they not chosen the actions that they did. Yes, 
But you can still reframe that if you have God focals on to be able to see that God can make beauty from ashes. He can take the pain and use that to fuel you into your purpose. And so it really is. I, I, love, I, I love that you did bring in this, this, uh, this work because the secular world is realizing what Joseph in the spiritual world understood for millennia, that God wants to take the pain and give you gain. That's what he wants to do. I, it was the purple mic next. Yes, Raul. I am a Mediterranean by origin and by heart, mm -hmm. and I'm an immigrant in this country. Although I'm naturalized now, I'm still called a foreign national or something <laughs> like that, which is better than being alien. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Anyway, I Although think... Although you are out of this world. <laughs> I think that many people in this room will relate to what I'm, what I'm implying here. Here we have a character, Joseph, who is an alien or a foreign national. Yes. Uh, and had to learn a different language. And now he's confronted, confronting 11 or 10 other aliens. Yeah. So put it in that context. Yeah. And I, again, many people in this room will understand uh, what I'm saying. And uh, he, when he experienced rejection, trials, um, bigotry, yeah. um, sometimes subtle and sometimes violent. Yeah. So um, I'm conflicted here with uh, with the the reading of scripture and and with things that we are saying here. Yeah. But my conflict uh, might be personal, although I think that many of you will understand. And I have a question, which perhaps has no answer which is when we see injustice done on other people or our, ourselves in this context, should we get out in the streets and protest mm. and uh, uh, appeal to justice for myself or for some other yeah. whose name might be George Floyd yeah. or might be some other people? Yeah. Or should we just let go let go because it's God's purpose. Hmm. That's, that's, that is the question we need to be asking, Raul. It's, it's the vital question. Now, there's two sides to this coin. The first side is how do you deal with injustice to you personally? And the models that we have of Joseph, of Jesus himself, and many others, including Daniel, who we have a lot of writings of how do you deal uh, with a life where you are doing everything you can to be connected with God, but you are in bondage by the will of other people around you. And you're going through the punishment and the pain of other people around you. And the example that scripture gives us, especially here in the story of Joseph, is we always have to look at this and say, am I going to allow this to drive a wedge between me and God or am I, am I going to allow this to be a situation to reframe, to allow God to step in and to show me that nothing is wasted? All this pain has a purpose. And the, the only reason why God allows within his will for this pain to come into your life is he needs to prepare you for the people he's bringing into your life. Because otherwise you could never empathize with those people. There are people who I, I am empathetic with that are surprised because they're like, I never knew you had to go through that. And I'm like, yeah, so let's commiserate and let's realize we're going to get through this. And some of the people I work with who are younger uh, think this is the end. And I help them through my empathy of saying, you know, I felt the same way, but take it from me a few steps down the road. It gets better. Hang on. It gets better. So as I look at the personal attacks, that is what God allows to be the fuel for me to be empathetic and to be sympathetic to individuals who need to have hope that it's going to be okay. God's still with me. God's going to work this out. Now, you mentioned the other side of the coin, which is what do we do when we see this injustice happening to someone else? And we also have to look at scripture 
and ask the question that's become a cliche, what did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And there are times when injustice was being enacted on people, and how did Jesus act? Now, they didn't have protest, but Jesus personally spoke into those people's lives. There were people uh, who were Samaritans, of whom the Jews were not supposed to touch because it was filthier from a ceremonial, religious ceremonial standpoint, filthier to touch them than to touch a dog or a rat, which were kind of the same back in that day. And yet Jesus chooses to walk in the borderlands where not only the Samaritans were hanging out, but the lepers are hanging out. And you have this story of these 10 lepers that come up to Jesus. And Jesus heals them, all 10. And he says, now go to the temple, show yourself, get your certificate that you're, you're clean now, and you can go back to your families. You've been restored to your families. He sends them off. And we have this story of only one coming back. And as well-meaning pastors have preached this sermon about thankfulness, about how nine were not thankful. They just left and, and they went and only one came back. And we totally missed the point. The one that came back was not a Jew. The other nine were Jews. The one that came back, Jesus told him to do something he was not allowed to do. Go to church. There is not a priest that would see him. And so that Samaritan did the only thing he could do and went to the only place he could go, the feet of Jesus. So when you see injustice happening around you, do what Jesus did and touch those people personally. Allow them to understand there is a place that's safe for you to go. And that's because I'm at the feet of Jesus and when you come with me, we're, gonna, we're, we're both going to bow on our knees, and we're both going to come to the feet of Jesus. This is a safe place. So when you see injustice happening, respond personally, like Jesus did. There's other examples you're probably already thinking about in Scripture that Jesus did. But I also want to share with you something we talked about several weeks ago in a different series. When we're talking about protests, remember, if your protest is anti, you're not standing for anything. Because a protest against does not have a position where you stand. That's why Mother Teresa, who, when she was asked, why aren't you marching at this anti-war protest? She said, if you have a pro-peace rally, I'll be there. She understood the key of how do you truly stand for something and really uphold the justice for people who are in an injustice stance. So, be really careful about that second side of the coin if it is something that you cannot reach out personally and deal with. Be careful that you're not standing against, but you really have a position that you stand for the justice of people. And so I think that's what we also see in Scripture too. What was the next mic? Was it red? It was blue. Okay, blue mic. Yes, sir. What strikes me about the whole Joseph story is no matter what, trials and tribulations he took to and uh, and also when he was elevated to position he, he kept his connection with God every day mm -hmm. and I, I think that's a good example for us if we can no matter what happens to us God promises he'll be with us in the good times and the bad times absolutely and and that was the key because quite frankly if you look at the previous three chapters before chapter 45, and you see the internal turmoil of Joseph, he has not forgiven his brothers. He still bears the grudge. He's still upset. He still knows that he has the ability to do to them worse than what they did to him. And he's wrestling with that. And you're right. If it wasn't for the fact that he had a connection with God, he never would have been able to come to the resolution that comes right here at, at this time. And so in our own lives, that's the beauty that Christ brings into our painful situations is saying, look, you can't forgive this on your own. So God's not waiting for you to forgive that person that hurt you. And then he'll come in and say, okay, since you did that, now I can be in your presence and you can be comfortable in my presence. That's not how it happens. It's the presence of God that brings the heart that can forgive the unforgivable. And that's what we see in the story, too. Was red the next one? Okay, yes, red microphone. Yes. 
So why is it that uh, religious people, even the more religious you are, the harder time you have with, this, with these concepts? And I think often <laughs> of, a, um, of the story of two Terrys. Yeah. Uh, since Norma and I met as missionary kids in Lebanon, it's a story out of Lebanon. Terry Waite was sent by the Archbishops of Canterbury in the, uh, the mid-1980s to try to establish peace among the warring factions there and got taken as a hostage for four years. Terry Anderson was this secular AP reporter who had a similar experience, but he was held for seven years. Yeah. Through this experience, Terry Waite, the man of God, almost lost his faith in God because I was on a mission for God and this is what you allowed to happen to me. Yeah. Terry Anderson rediscovered his Catholic faith and became a devout Christian again through the experience of this. And I've seen this happen also with people who have family members going through uh, illnesses. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine, Phil Follett, who was a conference union president, general conference vice president. He was so sure that God was going to save his wife that he almost lost his faith when God did not save his wife. Yeah. So in these uh, principles you're talking about here, it seems like sometimes the more religious you are, the harder you have with this concept that you're bringing to us today. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? And I would also add this, Dr. Osborne, you know this from your decades in academia. Why is it that some of the theologians who are teaching theology know the languages, lose their faith, and the Christian in the pew that doesn't have the doctorate in the theological degree keeps their faith? Um, I, that's always bothered me as well. Um, and the only thing that's, uh, that's come to my mind as I've gone through this, because even in, in my work as a chaplain at Pacific Union College where we worked together, I would have students come in who had, quote, lost their faith. And some of their faith struggle came from professors who should have been building their faith. And the questions that were poised to, to these students were, were too much for them to handle in, in their level of faith. And I love the, the book that Brian McLaren wrote uh, called Finding Faith. I believe now it's two books, but when I used it as, as part of a textbook uh, years ago, he had a chapter uh, talking about the four stages of faith. And the first stage of faith he called simplicity. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The second stage of faith, because as you're maturing and growing, um, there, there are some inconsistencies, and you have to deal with it. And so the second phase he calls complexity. That's where you are approached with people saying, okay, here's the ABCs and the one, two, threes. Here's the five-finger prayer here. If you do this, you'll get that. And so it's your way of manipulating God to say, this is what God wants. If I do it correctly, I'll get what I want. Then he says, that doesn't work. And so as you're progressing in your spiritual maturity, you get into the third phase he calls perplexity, which most people going through that phase are in the young adult years, and they would not define that stage of faith as a stage of faith. They would define it as doubt. Perplexity is a time when you say, I have, I have more questions than I have answered. I don't know what I can believe. Am I wasting my time on a fairy tale? Because there are the unanswerables or the things that have been answered have led me to a lack of faith, not a stronger faith. But he says everyone goes through perplexity at some time or, or another. And by the way, he says you go through the four stages of faith over and over again, just with less severity as the years go by. But he says once you get to the place in perplexity to where you say, I don't have all the, the, the answers, but I know enough. I know enough that I have enough evidence that there is a God and that he does care. He says, then you enter into the most mature stage of faith known as humility. And in humility, you're at a place to where you say, I don't have to know everything. I don't have to be blessed beyond measure. I know there's a God who loves me, and I know one day he's going to come for me. He says that even though you get to the fourth stage of faith, that things will come into your life to challenge that level of faith, that maturity. And you'll repeat back. 
And because of your old habits and your traditions and your culture, sociological constructs, you will go back to simplicity. And then, oh no, that did, I, I remember why that didn't work. And then you go to complexity. And then you go back into perplexity and ultimately come into humility. And it's this cycle that you go through in your lifetime. As I've shared that, especially with young adults who thought that they've lost their faith, once again, it reframed in their mind. Oh, I'm just at this stage. It's okay. I'm supposed to have questions because I'm searching. And it keeps their feet moving to where they understand there's still more to come. And I think what happens with a lot of people where they feel trapped into one phase and they don't know that's just part of the natural maturity of a spiritual being is they get themselves to a conclusionary point in their life to say, I need to make a decision right now. Is this real or is it not? And if you cause yourself to make a lifelong decision in that moment, you can completely lose your faith because you make this unchangeable conclusion in, in, in your life. And I, I've seen that a lot. Uh, Purple Mike. Um, yeah, I hope I'm still on the same path here. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, when you have a whole lot of heartache in your life, uh, you come to this point where you have to make a choice of how you want to deal with that heartache. Yeah. And um, somewhere along the line, I bought into the concept 100% that God is love. And it's that simple. And we are created and designed in that. And when we're designed in that and we act in that, that's how we're truly happy. So when injustices come to us, how we react to that injustice should be through the optics of love because that's how God created us. Yeah. So as an employer in my own little simple domed world, every time I've reacted to what I perceive as an injustice to say my employees mm -hmm. in a loving way, in love, yeah. I've always walked away from that, never regretting it. Right. Even if they've ended up burning me later, like you said, the future, we don't know. Other employees have seen how that company acted to them and it spoke bigger. The reverberation was more yeah. than just that single employee burning me in the end yeah. and when something happens tragic or you lose a loved one yeah. and you question your faith I've chosen to believe which I have I've chosen to believe that God is a loving God yeah. and he would not have done that because he loves the person who you took from you or not he took but left you yeah. and he loves you yeah. and if you love him back how are you going to use that are you going to use that in a loving way to honor the person who was taken away from you. Mm. Mm. I, I love that. That's, that's profound. You know, it, there's two things you encapsulated there. The spirit of Christ when he said, they know not what they do, which is completely wrapped around the question all of us need to answer. Why are you here? Why did God place you here in this time, in this place, in this community, in your family, at this very specific day and time, there are five texts in scripture that says that when God created you, he foreknew you and he created you and predestined you for good works that he determined beforehand, before you even got here. So if we're asking the question, why am I here? And literally trying to find the spiritual answer for that, I think it does be become quite a bit easier for us to say, they know not what they do. And I think that's the only way that we can have tolerance and forgiveness of the people who it does appear very, uh, very clearly to everyone else that these people know exactly what they're doing in that way. Green microphone, back here. Yes, Donna. I heard the testimony of a person this week who went through a tragic experience and it exemplifies a little bit of what I've had to grapple with. Yeah. And the individual lost um, their mother who was they were very close to yeah. and uh, the person said that they will always be sad yeah. always be sad that she's gone now I know you can translate that probably into they'll always miss her I hope but there is the possibility that the person could choose to be sad yeah. and so um, going back to my own experience in the inequities that I've experienced in life yeah. and you you have to move from that position of choosing to be sad yes. to going forward 
and knowing that there's a God that cares for you and loves you dearly. And when I had to grapple with the inequities of um, my son's demise, um, I literally, literally would have gone crazy had I moved forward with, well, why did this happen? And um, so I had to make a decision that I was going to let that go and let, in the end, God would handle that situation for me. So when um, now, and you're asking the question here, um, looking back on my own personal history, I would say that when I go through a trial, I can now say, thank you, Lord, for the trial, because based on faith Mm -hmm. and past experience, I can truly thank the Lord for the trial, knowing full well that I'm going to grow Mm -hmm. and be stronger because that's what he said will happen. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. And any of you who are going through a a trial and a struggle that you're like, I just don't know how to do what Donna just said. Talk to Donna. She understands having a child kidnapped, age of two, and murdered. And she just said what she said. A great resource to our community is Donna right there. Feel free to, to talk to her. If you're trying to figure out how do I get over the atrocities that the enemy brings into our lives. I want to close by looking at the the last two sections. Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15 of Genesis 45 when it says, Then he, Joseph, threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Now remember, up to that time, they, they couldn't talk to him. They couldn't say a good word about him. And yet, in, in this environment of forgiveness, they talked. Can you imagine what they talked about? It's probably the same as maybe one of the reconciling conversations that you've had of, of regret, of time lost, of how things have changed, how you've changed, how they've changed, and how different you are now and how different they are now and and this new reintroduction of who you are and this desire to tell the other person, I'm not the same person I used to be and, and neither are you and the understanding that God is growing us over time and that although it's been over 20 years for these brothers, um, God hasn't wasted those 20 years either. It's evident they are different men to be willing to be slaves so that the spoiled brother would go free. There has been life change here. And then it goes on in verses 21 to 24 to say, So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing. This whole story started with new clothing, didn't it? What a challenge that that new clothing had happened, and it's interesting to see right at the beginning of this story, the end of chapter 44, the brothers rip their clothing. They're broken men, clothing ripped, dirty, tear-stained. And just like Christ is going to do with us by giving us a new robe, Joseph says, I want to give you a new robe. And this robe, it's an interesting phrase. It's a, it's a word that means festive garments. These garments were, were only for special occasions, like, like, a, like a ball or some party, some celebration. And so he gives the brothers clothing that represents a celebration, a celebration of a new start together. And he says, uh, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. Commentators don't know what to make of this. Does he have the same problem that his father Jacob has in showing favoritism? Or is he still testing his brothers? Either way, it's horrible. So let's move on. Verse 24, and this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and the other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel along the way. So what did he mean by that? These brothers we're probably more scared now than when they first met Joseph. 
they have to confess to their father that this special son, Joseph, bearer of the coat of many colors, had not died at the hands of a wild animal like his father had guessed and like they made sure that he would guess. Be sure your sins will find you out. He's telling, don't argue, don't, don't quarrel, don't, don't. So, so it was your idea. How are we going to tell that? Well, you were the one who said. He said, he's bringing them back to his original statement. God sent me here. If you can reframe it in your mind as the person who did the bad deed against someone and realize that they see it in their mind as, you know what, what you meant for evil God use it for good. If we can get into that mindset, what a people of God, we would be representing his character in our community. That's really true. And I hope that something from this conversation really connected with your experience and and where you are right now. I am excited about the next episode because it's the exciting conclusion to this series on the life of Joseph. And in this session coming up, we talk about what do you do when you have to walk from what you know into the unknown, the challenges of going from where you're comfortable to where you're extremely uncomfortable, ultimately to go to the place that God wants you to be and needs you to be. It's going to be a great episode. We'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.